Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Odyssey into the Unknown, The In-Between Definitive Companion, Volume 2. In a world of black and white, there is a region of gray, a space beyond man's senses, eclipsing his subconscious and seated in the vastness of oblivion. It is a place of knowledge, a place of terror, a place we control. You are about to embark on an extraordinary journey from the mind's innermost fears to the soul's darkest depths. Leave behind the comforts and serenity of dimension and set a course for an odyssey into the unknown. Hands at ten and two, for route and destination unchartered, and a stop off in the in-between. Hovering somewhere in the stilly space of television's premier golden age, together with all the celebrated sitcoms and quiz shows of the 1950s, there's arguably no greater reverence than for that of the plays. The filmed anthology series that took us from the foggy, blood-stained streets of dreary old London with a whodunit so absorbing it transcended any in-program ad campaign, pitches and plugs for marshmallow cream or dancing boxes of breakfast cereals, to the boundless stretches of space and time for a tension-filled trip into the terrifying untold reaches of reality and the surreal, where spaceman meets dinosaur and the recently bereaved receive messages from beyond the grave and a spine-tingling mire suitable for the stars. Of course, none of them achieved the above-mentioned more than writer-producer Melvin Sorrells' influential and long-lauded science fiction fantasy anthology series, The In-Between. Debuting on October 3, 1957, The In-Between tickled the wondrous imaginations of television audiences from all walks of life, typically leaving them in a paralyzed state of mental hysteria and mounting awe. Opposite the hard-boiled, fast-talking detectives, fiendish pirates, and dastardly outlaws also on offer at the time, In-Between fans were treated to ordinary, everyday protagonists, not unlike themselves from alcoholics and layabouts to casual commuters and the simply unremarkable, common, imperfect people, no more deserving than the last, presented with greatness or despair in a cosmic lottery of comeuppance. With one foot in irony and the other in social justice, be it in a realm of things past or things still to come, these mind-bending and bewildering half-hour tales were assembled from television's foremost talents, the day's preeminent visionaries, master dream weavers, and spellbinding performers. What follows is a companion to six classic episodes of the Trailblazing series, seasoned and served with a side of static in a star-laden diner in the sky. Now Serving, Season 2, Episode 1, first aired August 21, 1958. Barnabas Toons is an absent-minded, accident-prone office clerk living in the city, 
a romantic, fanatic, and lover of all things life. His work desk is strewn with sports pennants and presidential flair, sunny souvenirs, and model planes. One morning, while on his way to work, giddily engrossed in the newspaper funny pages, Barn, the nick bestowed to him by the neighborhood kids, steps out in front of a produce truck and is killed instantly. His spirit rises from his body and materializes in a chair inside a sterile white waiting room with a thin layer of fog affixed to the floor. There's a simple yet sleek reception counter flanked by two unmarked doors with a Rolodex-like ticket queue displayed on the wall. A nearby clock without hands hangs unassumingly. Barn notices a smattering of other souls in the room, each holding a ticket, just before one pops into his hand with a startling ping. After a while, Barn's number is called and he's met by a man in a light-colored suit who exits from one of the doors. He calls himself Gabe. Gabe informs Barnabas that he's now deceased and that there's the small item of sorting him. You mean heaven, or... Barn says, motioning downward. Gabe informs Barn that they don't use such conventional terms as those places are merely states of consciousness and that the afterlife is of one's own making. Perspective, if you will, Mr. Toons, Gabe says with a comforting smile. After all... One man's heaven is another man's. Barn points downward as Gabe nods through a looming grin. Gabe then gives Barn a bitter tasting dose of what he calls all-knowing from a small elixir bottle and escorts him through the door. Barn immediately finds himself in a place much like Earth, life as he remembers it, but with the added ability to know anything and everything, past, present, and future, instantly. Like, how many stairs is it to the top of the Imperial Building? 1,753 precisely, Barn responds, followed by a light bulb look of amazement. Alas, Barnabas quickly realizes he finds no fun in having all the answers. There's no kicks in knowing the winner of the big fight, or the finishing order of the track, or which filling it's going to be in a box of chocolates. Back in the waiting room, Barn is met by a gentleman in a dark-colored suit from the other door, who calls himself Sam. He tells Barn that his side removes the burden of knowing and offers eternal bliss through naivete. Sam gives Barnabas a sweet-flavored cookie, a stupor to soak up the all-knowing, and motions to the door with a reassuring, right this way, Mr. Toons. Inside the other realm, still clutching his ticket, Barn discovers that ignorance robs him of feeling, and that without stakes, it's all meaningless and quite dull. Without worry and trepidation to heighten the thrill and excitement of existence, it's just going through the motions. He finds speeding down dirt roads of bore, is utterly indifferent in the face of a foul ball, and every bite of filet tastes more unsavory than the last. Back at the waiting room, Barn is asked to choose one side or the other. Unsatisfied with his options, he prompts the angelic guides with an alternative. It's all in my head, right? Barnabas leads the two. Of my own making, right? That's what you said. Then I choose neither. My number can't be up if I don't have one, Barnabas famously says before closing his eyes and willing his ticket away with a ping to the astonishment of Gabe and Sam. 
As one, they anxiously grab at Barn as he closes his eyes again, tighter, and vanishes from the waiting room altogether. He wakes up in the middle of the street to a crowd of concerned bystanders who help him to his feet. Barnabas dusts himself off, reclaims his newspaper, and continues on his way with a chuckle toward his comic strip. The crowd disperses with the aid of a traffic officer as Sorrels' closing narration plays out. Under it, we watch as a sidewalk custodian clears away the mashed produce with a push broom, revealing Barnes' mangled ticket from the waiting room. This pretty young girl has learned an important beauty secret. A humorously intended, nevertheless charming take on the hereafter and a string of angel-filled second season in-betweens, including a game of stickball with the 122nd Street Cherubs and Wings 38 Short, not to mention Owen Marks's stirring adaptation of his short story and the band played on, featuring a heavenly nightclub orchestra of late legends, now serving separates itself from all the rest due chiefly to its lighter tone and the previously mentioned stab at comic relief, a discipline series creator and episode writer Melvin Sorrells in no way excelled. Fortunately in the role of Barnabas Toons, television-heavy Sidney Adelson lent Sorrells' story the fleshed-out levity and the reverence it so needed for his first of two in-betweens. The second arrived in season five with Tuppence Babbage's shuddersome clone episode to gaze in the mirror pristine, with Adelson playing dual roles, however similar. Adelson's gay, charismatic approach to Sorrels' dim-witted and bumbling Barnabas tunes presented audiences with a more relatable principal character, an oddball who outwits associates from the afterlife, albeit punctuated with the series' signature enigmatic question mark in the form of Toons' crumpled ticket. In spite of being a prolific writer, Sorrels was notorious for all but slapping an in-between title page on previously unfinished works, especially in the final stretch of a season. So just as episodes A Timepiece for Randall Diggs and Franklin Gray's A Fuddy Duddy were mined from earlier works by Sorrels, so was the initial framework for the series season two opener. One evening in 1953, during his days writing for the innovative drama anthology Stage 25, after returning home from dinner with his wife, where the eminent showrunner sent back his roast chicken twice, first for over-seasoning, then again for under-seasoning, he sat down with a pair of salt and pepper shakers in the smoke-filled breakfast nook of his San Fernando Valley ranch home and wrote the first act of a teleplay entitled Two Sides to Every Coin. It was a story about a pair of competing angels, one light, one dark. In it, by way of a celestial clerical error, both angels are tasked by their respective realms to the same mortal assignment, whose lust for life doesn't make either of their jobs any easier. Then in 1958, following a weekend charity event on Helena Island with fellow network actor Sidney Adelson, Sorrels wanted to thank the former villainous star of McGrady Company for having breakfast with him each morning, despite Sorrels' refusal to try Adelson's hollandaise smothered asparagus by writing Sidney his very own in between. Sorrels revamped the unfinished Vine Angel script one sunny afternoon poolside, speaking to his dictaphone, describing the process to the readers of Tellview magazine as a cinch, before going on to admit that he considered Adelson's overall performance light between the lines, but not so lousy to permit being seen in public eating alone. Hollywood feature writer for the esteemed trade, Patty Marsh, 
insisted that Sorrels was so tanned during their interview her photographer had to open up the camera three stops. All the same, now serving represents the in-between and its repeatedly revisited commentary on the great beyond at its most mischievous, while staying true to the series' constant and clear through-line on the subject. The next world is of our own making. Night of the Machines, Season 3, Episode 30, first aired April 7, 1960. In a backwater Louisiana parish, traveler and humble inventor Dr. Wutzler ascends the front steps of a small town hall with his latest invention, Henry, a towering, human-looking robot with bland expression to register his candidacy in the local mayoral election. A simple tinkerer with a grand gift for humanity, the scientist serves as Henry's campaign manager and imparts to the sign-in committee there has never been a more perfect candidate for office on the planet than that which stands before them. Selfless and preset for goodwill on demand, Dr. Wutzler proclaims while Henry signs the registry, then strikes a genuine yet mechanical smile for the minuscule gaggle of press. A young boy playing jacks overhears the scientist and runs outside, presumably to spread the word of Henry. His rubber ball still bouncing in the foreground as the boy scampers away. Moments later, after exiting the hall, Henry and Dr. Wutzler are met by an entire town square of passers-by, stopped dead in their tracks, staring with trepidation at the strange newcomer. A group of shabby children stationary on their bikes, a perspiry mother pulling her child close, a worn man shoveling manure from a truck. That afternoon, the scientist and Henry go around town in their run-down workshop on wheels, posting campaign signs on telephone poles and people's lawns, only to have them removed immediately by the leery townsfolk. Later that evening, the citizens and electorate alike assemble at town hall for a meeting of the candidates and to discuss primary issues. Curious spectators overflowing on the front steps and into the square where a mob of torch-toting, axe-wielding posers have gathered. While posing for pictures, Henry picks up a baby, to the audible shock and horror of the crowd, and gently kisses them on the cheek. Henry's opponent, great-grandson of a southern ex-general and the town's current mayor, Cuffy Harding, running for re-election, formerly unopposed, is brash and entitled, and his answers tend to suit a popularity contest more than a political election. On the other hand, Henry is articulate, albeit drony, insightful and on point. He explains that unlike Mr. Harding, whose plantation-like mansion sits overtopping the town, his primary function is to serve mankind and provide peace across the province. Man cannot govern impartially, vividly expresses Henry, not when there's a shred of survival in him, for it is his nature. Henry makes mention of the residents' lack of quality of life and acknowledges the mayor's fine suits and luxury car. Incensed, Mayor Harding verbally attacks Henry, calling him a bucket of bolts fit for a dime museum, a scrap metal sideshow, inciting the gallery of townspeople into a violent fever. They rush Henry, knocking down Dr. Wutzler, and drag the robot's passive body outside into the square. 
belligerent, the ferocious crowd pulls Henry limb from limb and strings up his beaten and dented torso by the neck from a large, ancient-looking oak tree. Scratched and bleeding slightly, Dr. Wutzler emerges in the square to find his creation. He didn't want to hurt you. The scientist blasts the mob at the onset of a powerful monologue. He wanted to help you, make your lives better. He sought harmony for you, not pain, not destitution. He didn't have a drop of the poison coursing through your bodies, a sickness you falsely call pride. Shame on all of you. Then, over the flame-lit shadow of Henry's hanging carcass, now still, Sorrels' closing narration plays out as the mob disbands. Hate, not an instinct, but a condition, a disease, a plague whose source is man, Sorrels says with a somber note, a product of programming in a town which has no name, because it is neither unique nor tucked away. It sits off every main road and highway, with cornerstones set in small-mindedness, atop a system of roots that run deep, deep beneath the blood-soaked soil of progress professed. In a forceful episode on prejudice and racial indoctrination, Night of the Machines poses a simple question. Who are the real robots? Unlike an extension of man, which bases the robot's hostility in human design, or human error, as Sorrels once so eloquently stated, being that the robot was created in man's image, Night of the Machines offers an anything but mild conversation on race relations and public resistance to the civil rights movement. It proposes that hate is fueled by irrational fears, fed to society similar to a slop bucket strewn about the trough, Sorrels contended in a column for elegant housewifery. Handpicked by Sorrels from a catalog of short stories by acclaimed author Vera LaRoche after she approached series co-producer Kirby Valentine at Manhattan's on Sunset, who was jowls deep in a plate of spaghetti and meatballs, which LaRoche asked the waiter to box up for her, Night of the Machines remains a masterstroke in the in-between lineup, with brutal, unequivocal relevance that runs strong to this day. A fan of the series' first two seasons, LaRoche, with stories published monthly in numerous fiction magazines, offered Valentine and Sorrels their pick of the litter, so to speak. That was every title except for one, a heavy two-act called Night of the Machines. The esteemed author felt it was too much for the trivial medium of television, which she once referred to as the latest new fandangled novelty in a world spellbound by technological parlor tricks to say nothing of a half-hour time slot. Expectedly, Melvin Sorrels had to have it. So LaRoche tripled her price and managed to work into the deal a forward by Sorrels in her next publication. Sorrels later admitted to the 1972 graduating class of the Scholastic Academy for Wayward Boys that he borrowed most of LaRoche's forward from a collection of satirical seasonal quiche recipes. In private, Melvin Sorrells admittedly dreaded the network's take on the story's racial overtones, to say nothing of their corporate sponsors, all of which were lost on the studio when they insisted on signing a new alternate sponsor for the episode, Sweet Dixie Dessert Cakes, a national snack food based out of Birmingham and featuring a Confederate flag on the wrapper. 
In fact, the network and agency were so zealous about the commercial play, they doubled down and dressed every scene with the sponsor's tasty, southern-themed treat, specifically the company's signature chocolate variety. In 1961, while being honored at an awards ceremony for the Hollywood Alliance of Black Riders, Sorrels was facetiously presented with a tray of Sweet Dixie dessert cakes, to which he responded with a reception of uproarious laughter and applause. What, no vanilla? The salt that says I love you to your skin. The Bandstand, Season 4, Episode 11. First aired October 13, 1960. Millicent Appleby, a reservedly curious yet polite and personable bookkeeper from the city, pulls into a country gas station en route to her hometown, Clausenville, for the first time since leaving 20 years earlier. The lone station attendant remarks on a trumpet case sitting in her back seat, slightly scuffed and with a deep score on its edge. A lady trumpet player, don't find too many of those, the attendant says, skeptically prodding. Millicent explains that she doesn't play and instead picked up the empty case at a downtown antique shop to keep from smushing her sandwich after doing so countless times. A quirk that leaves the station attendant scratching his head as Millicent drives away. Upon her arrival, after stopping by her parents' house to find no one home, Millicent makes her way into town, nibbling at her sandwich while walking through a park where she's struck by an alarming sense of dread at the sight of a bandstand surrounded by rose bushes. She escapes to the drugstore counter of a soda fountain, where she composes herself. The soda jerk, an older gentleman, seeing her trumpet case resting on the counter, remarks on how familiar Millicent looks. Years ago, used to be a little girl come in here. Same button nose, same brown eyes, the clerk says, reaching deep into his memories. Played her trumpet up and down the block, yes sir. Congenial little thing. Couldn't play a lick to save her life, though. At that moment, a short man at the back of the drugstore, a town groundskeeper, hunched over in his own misery, a misfit, ten years Millicent senior and with a small scar over his eye, notices the trumpet case, and appears perplexed, then somewhat startled. Millicent returns to her childhood home, the man from the drugstore following her from a distance. Much to Millicent's surprise, this time an elderly female caretaker answers the door and informs her that the lady of the house isn't available. Please, I've come so far to see them, Millicent appeals to the caretaker. She informs Millicent that Mrs. Appleby suffered a nervous breakdown some 20 years earlier after the disappearance of her daughter, and that Mr. Appleby had taken his own life shortly following. Millicent returns to the park, oddly void of emotion, and watches a group of children playing on the merry-go-round. The man shadows her, spying from the cover of a tree. The children dart for the bandstand and begin scaling it from all sides. Millicent rushes the children. Stay away from there, she screams, trying to chase them off with little avail. Go, go away from here. Quickly a crowd forms and approaches, the man joining, keeping safeguard behind a row of tall, concerned townspeople. The children scurry away as a woman consoles Millicent, raving mad and appearing like a lunatic. 
She inexplicably drops to the ground and frantically digs at the rose bushes with her hands, clawing and scraping, scratching her arms against the thorns. The man watches nervously, his scar twitching with every scoop of soil. Suddenly, the onlookers grimace at the sight of an old dirt-plugged trumpet and a little girl's bow. Millicent springs to her feet and, horror-struck, slowly backs up through the crowd. Their gazes remain fixed on the grave. They turn to look at Millicent and see that she's vanished into thin air. And standing there alone behind them, the man, the groundskeeper, overcome with guilt, sobbing and covering his face. The crowd, now a jury of peers, stares down the man unflinchingly, cold and unsympathetic. In the episode's final shot, we see the trumpet and bow unearthed, framed with several roses glistening brightly, tickled by a gentle breeze. In season five, the in-between featured more famously its gothic-inspired archetype of the conscious, heavy, guilt-ridden murderer in the theater. An episode about a prominent German socialite with a heinous past that dates back to the war. A past unbeknownst to his dinner party guests. With a lavish spread of glinting things procured from an untold number of slain Jews, he's haunted and driven mad in full view. A familiar Hasidic tune played by the pianist, an Austrian caterer he imagines addressing him by his former SS name, and crystal stemware that shrieks and wails with agonizing cries while a guest shows off a talent for playing water glasses. All of which crescendo to the muffled sound of a music box, tucked away in a drawer filled with spoils, personal effects and valuables, that the one-time officer hears rattling, growing increasingly louder. Both summoning the supernatural, the bandstand, the same bandstand used in Dick Sullivan's cross-dressing musical comedy Blush and Brass, differs primarily from the fact that it's told through the victim's point of view, and an unwitting one at that, compelled by and acting on forces unknown. Developed from an original script by series writer Felix Rosenblum after he read the short story The Forest, Preston Buckley's tragic social critique about a backwoods outsider, a serial killer who strangles a girl on the outskirts of a carnival, then buries her in the woods before planting a tree over her grave, a tree at the edge of a forest of trees, the bandstand posed alarming concern among the censors, what with the murder of a child and all. A popular literary trope of the 40s and 50s that, in 1960, didn't align with the corporate commercial concerns of the nuclear family, especially a spending one. Working in close collaboration alongside credited episode director Peter Barrett, Sorrells reluctantly and regrettably, as admitted years later on Ron Edwards' examines, allowed onto set a representative from the network, following the department's approval of the storyboards. Assistant director Scotty Ames, 27 episodes, spoke of the extraordinary shooting conditions in a 1987 in-between televised documentary. Standards and practices sent over a deputy, a little guy, and he didn't have a sense of humor about it, let me tell you. I figured he must have been at the back of the line when the studio was sorting that week's flood of new arrivals fresh off the bus or something, because he knew all the ins and outs of the set. Even brought his own chair, plopped it down right next to Peter's, showed up in these black knee-high military boots and riding breeches, beret, the works. 
He'd motion to the crew if they were standing in his view of the actors. You know, with a pssst. He'd shout stuff out in the middle of a take, like, Cut, this isn't working. Or, rewrite. He was constantly calling for rewrites. He'd throw up his arms all animated, hopping down from his chair. You know, one to a little box he carried around set. Gesticulate to Ivy during her emotional scenes. She sounds like she's got a mouthful of marbles with those words, he'd say. Mouthful of marbles. He liked to say that. That rouge makes her look like she's got a mouthful of marbles. Or, that Aaron boy could benefit from a mouthful of marbles. And the damnedest thing is, he was usually right. The whole scar above the murderer's eye was his. Cost us three days of reshoots. We went $45,000 over budget. That's back when we were averaging 35000 an episode. What can I say, though? Get knew his stuff. He'd call the mill breaks and discuss camera placement with Peter and Chuck. Peter didn't care for him for obvious reasons and certainly didn't appreciate all the notes or the constant tugging on his pants leg. After we wrapped on the episode, I never saw the kid again. Hell, I don't even remember his name. I'll tell you, though, it was some of the best direction we ever had. An oh-so-curious cabinet. Season 4, episode 29. First aired February 23rd, 1961. Lucius Harper, a work-weary, worse-for-wear, nevertheless chatty kitchen appliance salesman, electric gizmos and cheapomatics, drowns his listlessness in a dying city bar on a cold winter's eve. He rattles off word-perfect pitches in a daze to an attractive, disinterested woman, then a laid-out bar fly, and finally a dinged-up napkin dispenser. He staggers from the bar, slogging a caddy of utensils and accessories, and wanders thick into the gray, fog-choked night. Eventually, he verges on the shoreline and a boardwalk playland, an amusement park closed for the season, stretched with an ornate glass hall and surrounded by viewfinders, arcade and game stalls, even a wooden roller coaster, lifeless and set in a misty shroud. Lucius notices a rundown kinoscope-like device by the railing, a coin-operated motion picture peephole viewer with French embellishments and clawfoot legs, rusty, weathered, and non-operational, a statue to and relic of a bygone era. Lucius searches his pockets and retrieves a penny, only to find the coin slot is blocked. As he walks away, the machine begins emitting faint music, a gay Parisian melody. He slowly inches back and peers into the viewing window. Inside the cabinet, projected on the screen, he sees a version of himself, a Gaelic tramp in period clothing, circa 1918, standing at a street corner lamppost, smoking a cigarette and scratching his backside. It's a gag, Lucius chuckles drunkenly. A trick viewer, for laughs. He watches the sidewalk scene as a wickedly dressed thief with a gun and curled mustache creeps up on him. Then, abruptly, Lucius feels a gun in his back, followed by a voice that calmly says, All right, pal, nice and easy. Wallet. How about a handy dandy dicer, friend? Lucius says, carefully turning around to find, to his surprise, a present day version of the thief from the moving picture. Then, without warning, the wailing siren of an old-timey Black Mariah sounds at full volume. The thief takes off. Lucius, stupefied, swings back to the machine, 
then back to the thief, only to find that he's disappeared. The boardwalk, still and desolate. Wide-eyed, Lucius frantically returns to the viewing window. Flickering inside, he sees a horse-drawn paddy wagon with a quick-moving muster of slapstick police officers round up the thief, now his present-day self, panicking with fright over his surroundings, and watch as they throw him into the back of the police truck. Lucius lifts his face from the viewer with a sobering look of astonishment. Back inside the machine, he sees his tramp self sitting on a sunny French beach, wearing a vintage swimsuit, as a woman with bobbed hair twirling a parasol approaches. He speedily stands up and greets her with a tip of his straw hat. She makes love to him with her eyes and drops several coins into a peacock feather coin purse with a flirty wink, soliciting him for a date. Expectedly, Lucius immediately spots the present-day harlot, a dolled-up streetwalker in a fur-trimmed coat, nearing him from the shadowy cover of a closed-down carousel. The helpless, unsuspecting sort soon finds herself in the moving picture machine, absent from the boardwalk, bewildered on the bright beach in a flapper's bathing suit. Noticeably aware of the film edge, she feels at the right side of the frame, unable to advance beyond. Lucius watches helplessly with terror-filled eyes as she screams silently, trapped. After several frightening moments, dragging his trembling hands down his face in a twisted frenzy, Lucius hears the youthful laughter of a strolling, canoodling couple. Stay back, he yells, a madman jabbering in the dark. Don't look at it. Lucius sprints for the couple in a hysterical fit, running right by them, repeating himself. Don't look at it. They quickly turn to see Lucius gone, erased from the boardwalk. As the couple slowly approaches the device, the man bends down for an object on the pier. What is it, Joe? The woman asks. The man picks up a dated early 20th century hand-cranked egg beater, shoddy and falling apart. My grandmother used to use one of these, back before electric beaters came along. The man wearily looks to the viewer and recoils with a panic-stricken gasp at the sight of Lucius's petrified face playing on the screen, filling the frame in a close-up, screaming mutely. His face breaks away as the film rolls leader and the viewing window closes. We hear the beater fall to the floorboards with the couple's scream cut short. Instantly, we see the boardwalk empty, the couple gone, as the moving picture machine faintly plays its gentle Parisian melody. Your eyes can be made more beautiful in seconds. Based on the short story La Boite Magique, The Magic Box, an unpublished piece by Maurice Toussaint, lost to Melvin Sorrells in a single hand of poker, an oh-so-curious cabinet epitomizes the in-between's more impish, tongue-in-cheek essence. A time-honored episode featured in television critic Morgan Smythe's top 50 in-betweens, it falls on a lengthy list of those episodes enjoyed by all, the ones that still send shivers down your spine and continue to deliver decades later. They might not be the most dynamic or technically spotless in the canon, but what they lack in depth, they more than make up for in viewer reverence, lasting impression, and above all, iconography. Just as the tailor's hand and for the betterment of Bitterman, or the eyeless faces and the blind leadeth, fill a fan with that special familiar feeling of nightmarish nostalgia, 
The sight of Lucius's terrified face playing out inside the cabinet with bone-rattling gongs never fails to disappoint, no matter how many times you see it. Just as unforgettable is Cabinet's unique score, provided by French surf guitarist Gerard Dino for a one-off collaboration with the acclaimed series. Keeping with the story's mordacious theme, Sorrels and Season 4 producer Melton Ellsworth felt the episode would benefit from an outside composer. I wasn't shaken by the prospect of an extensive wine tab, Melvin Sorrels jokingly told Screen Grab Journal. We rented a space in Malibu on the beach and gave him three days to come back to us with something. I let him bring in his own engineers and even offered my services on the woodblock. We ended up cutting the track from the mix, but I was still happy with the overall result. Sorrels hired freshman writer Rick Fontaine to rebuild Tucson's magic box from the ground up. Fontaine was paid $500 for the assignment, which Sorrels seized at a market price table value of $800 with Queens over Jacks netting him a $300 profit. As reported sometime later by former child actor Gregory Davies, the creepy kid from season four's The Simple Life, inside Screen Parade's 1976 TV special edition, Sorrels famously spent the earnings on a bottle of Paris brandy that he served at his exclusive annual black tie flying saucer viewing party, of which Davies was a guest. An oh-so-curious cabinet marked Fontaine's most successful effort on the series. Other notable episodes include Them Old Boots of Paws and the perfectly preserved Edmund Blythe. When asked about the endurance of Cabinet while speaking at an Albuquerque conference in 1982, Fontaine answered, It's morbidly playful. But, you know, not as morbidly playful as the perfectly preserved Edmund Blythe. Did you see that one? Before Rick Fontaine's death in 1984, he released his courageously honest and expressive memoir, the posthumously best-selling an oh-so-curious shadow looming over me. A talented writer unable to escape the success of a work he didn't entirely conceive, despite the vast differences and versions pointed out to him by production, his extended family, and the occasional sidewalk stranger, Rick Fontaine's life was produced into a play for the third and final season of the 1985 in-between series reboot, an episode that served as an early credit to Hollywood blockbuster director Paul Clement. With Fontaine's memoir as a model, First-time writer and future creator of the global hit animated series Zippy and Ralph, Stephen Sharpsburg wrote a story from scratch about a little girl on Christmas Eve who mistakes an alien for Santa. They see you when you're sleeping, the most memorable of the in-between's third iteration. However, not all of Rick Fontaine's life was lost in the adaptation. The little girl in Sharpsburg's teleplay is given an extraordinary gift by the benevolent extraterrestrial, a magic box that, when cranked, can predict the future. Just try it. You'll love it. Specimens of Whipple Street Interstage Left, Season 5, Episode 8. First aired September 28, 1961. The scene. A quaint, sunny suburban block party. Mid-July. A lively backyard barbecue of neighborly banter and water-soaked horseplay decked out in summer streamers with patriotic panache and strange symbols. On cue, Sorrels' tender opening narration explains that this is no ordinary block party, as we notice the residents of Whipple Street unusually mismatched. The families appear strikingly odd in their makeup, non-traditional, with nebulous gender roles held by varying ages. An elderly woman and a young boy, Ruth and Jimmy, 
play host while their apparent daughter, Helen, a woman in her 30s, works the grill, flipping burgers and calling out orders. You're up, Jerry, she barks. Got you one here as dry as your fescue, just like you like it. A game of hide-and-seek goes off with a group of juvenile-behaving adults. Ready or not, here I come. A man in his 40s with a propeller beanie shouts out. Abe, an elderly gentleman with kooky shoulder-length hair, lights a cigarette for his 12-year-old bride, Ellie. A woman with a cigar, Connie, relaxes in a patio chair next to a small radio, blaring what sounds like a one-sided political talk show with a laugh track. A teenage boy, Jesse, and a man with glasses, Arnold, sip on bottles of pop and discuss the weather. Supposed to be another hot one, Jesse says to Arnold before we're shown two suns in the sky, beating down on the block party. A drinking glass sweats and a brutish-built man, Chuck, delicately fans himself. At one point, quite bizarrely, the guests all suddenly pause and turn toward the camera lens as Jerry steps in and delivers an impromptu advertisement for a soda label, which he enjoys with a refreshing swig. Just before Helen's smile-heavy sales plug for a brand of charcoal briquettes. Then with a snap, the residents seamlessly return their focus to the party. It isn't long after this androgynous scene of communal and commercial harmony gives way to increasing fits of aggression when the excessive heat kicks off a dispute between Jesse and Arnold over the makeup of cream soda at last year's block party. The disagreement turns to name-calling, then name-calling to physical threats. Quickly, the quarrel is pacified by Jimmy, the eight-year-old homeowner. Later, annoyed by Connie's loud cackling and employing a vocabulary beyond her years, Ellie challenges the charisma and hilarity of the personality on the radio, as well as their political convictions, insulting Connie. They squabble over the radio volume and make hateful, personal remarks toward one another. Again, Jimmy steps in to temper the pair. Jerry, heated, complains to Helen about his burger, and Arnold gives Jesse an Indian burn. It all builds to a mad and frenzied montage. A pitcher of lemonade shatters against the patio. Ellie cries bloody murder in an extreme close-up. A brick smashes through a window. The voice on the radio grows abusive and incendiary. Helen holds Jerry's hand to the barbecue grill. Jesse and Arnold break their bottles on a table and circle each other in a face-off. Jesse swipes at Arnold. The it man with the beanie is pinned to the ground by a croquet hoop over his neck. A ball rolls, clunking his head. Chuck cowards in a corner, crying uncontrollably with his hands covering his ears. The montage is intercut with shots from a location we can't place but they appear to be from some sort of control room, each corresponding to the riotous scene. A hand increases a dial labeled political hostility. A hand increases a dial labeled temperature. A line of bald, human-looking scientists with oversized foreheads and an extra row of eyebrows watch on with interest. A man with matching features wearing a suit sits in a sound booth, the voice from the radio reading from a script with clenched fists, preaching with vibrato similar to a tyrannical leader. We briefly see, eerily, a well-dressed audience of like aliens, free of expression, the laugh track over them, in auditorium-style seating. 
the occasional youth snacking on an outer space equivalent to popcorn or wearing a foam hat resembling a little earth girl's blonde hair. Then abruptly, a buzzer, high-pitched and piercing, rings out and the residents of Whipple Street calm, falling into a waking trance. A team of aliens in lab coats step into the backyard, which is clearly now a soundstage. Strange-looking cameras, metallic prods, recording devices, and futuristic instruments with bleeps and bloops surround the set. Trial 7 is complete, sir. A senior scientist with an electronic clipboard says to a higher-up inside the control room, a project manager in a suit. The higher-up instructs them to ready the subjects for the next trial, then consults with another manager in a suit. Lake and Oakwood streets are yielding similar results, the second suit says. More specimens from Earth are due to arrive in Half Moon's time, but I don't suspect they'll be any different. Fickle species, aren't they? Humans? The first suit says casually. Alter their social and psychological makeups and the outcomes vary only slightly, but inconvenience them physically or make them aware of their differences using their own conventional devices, and they tear one another apart. The suits cross off the Earth planet from their list and continue their zoological search for an intelligent species worthy of their knowledge. A massive composite shot shows guests filing down one of several suburban-looking streets with enclosures inside a sort of working wildlife biological theme park and pleasure garden with rides and restaurants. Over Sorrels' closing narration, we see the stage lights illuminate on a reset, re-racked Whipple Street block party, this time more traditional in its arrangement. The hosts are Chuck and Helen, the couples are paired by age, the children are the ones playing hide-and-seek, and the adults are smoking and drinking. Each of them stand entranced at their starting locations, smiling. In several western towns, children rarely got tooth decay. Why? Their drinking water contained fluoride. Although uniquely different in tone, Sorrels once again takes on the collective theme of human programming, fear, mania, and mankind's inevitable self-destruction in this truly timeless and unorthodox fan favorite. It features scientists of an alien race conducting social trials on earthly abductees inside a deep space theme park, a clinical menagerie, proceedings open to an advanced, scientifically-minded public. Faithfully adapted by Sorrels from William R. F. Todd's short story of the same name, where Whipple Street really shines is in its direction. To ensure a successful switch, the synonymous dose of irony or narrative twist that arrives with an episode, hairstylist-turned-director Jack Berman relied upon a less classical, more progressive approach in order to signify Whipple Street's unearthly setting. To achieve this peculiar feeling, Berman and director of photography Don Sutton shot the entire episode with 28 and 16 millimeter wide lenses, giving Whipple Street and its residents a distorted, almost fisheye look. Additionally, he canted the camera and always placed it at either high or low angles, never eye level. The shot of Helen through the barbecue grates, symbolizing a prison, the guests from the sprinkler's perspective, the overtop wide lens from the birdhouse looking down on the residents as if they were under a microscope, each ingeniously constructed, even if they weren't entirely comprehended by the whole of the production. It's supposed to be off-putting, Berman reassured season 5 producer Cecil Holloway during a lively on-set disagreement, 
before Holloway replied, I, I, I know that. In addition, many elements of the set were constructed with extreme, exaggerated angles, styled in a vein of German expressionism, the fence and arbor, the house, skewed and elongated for psychological effect. Costume designer and future series art director Joy Harbin designed the unusual suits worn by the alien project managers, endeared for decades on in-between lunchboxes and bobbleheads, the oddly cut stand-up collars, overlapping semicircular lapels, and single-thread neckties, doubled in thread count to show up better on film. With the hard production date fast approaching, Harbin hastily lifted the design from the B-movie drive-in cult franchise, Planet of the Forbidden, specifically and quite memorably raced to the Planet of the Forbidden. By no means an instant classic, considering its unconventional shooting style, Specimens of Whipple Street Interstage Left appeared too much for 1960s American audiences, particularly when aired after the mid-season finale of Warren Cox D.A., wherein the wholesome, peanut-butter-loving, milk-chugging title lawyer was shot in the back during his closing argument. A network blunder and sweep-scheduling oversight that Sorrels jokingly laid at the feet of dairy cows everywhere. Over time, though, Whipple Street gained acclaim and a much-deserved revisit thanks to the young visionaries of late 1960s Hollywood, who were inspired by international cinema of the day. Interestingly, Sorrels' Whipple Street adaptation was written in unison with his original, less stellar script for the fourth season's A Special Kind of Spring, as well as an unproduced in-between play called Corporal Magentry, Classification AWOL. More importantly, it came at the back of a week-long stay with the star-studded religious group, the Solicers, at their Hollywood Hills compound following a coercive invitation from the group's leader, Emmett Blake a sci-fi fanatic and in-between devotee, wildly recognized around town for his shaved head and silver jumpsuit with lightning bolts. Made up of a congregation exclusive to Los Angeles County's wealthiest and most influential figures, many of whom at the time held high-profile positions within the entertainment industry, including a wait list of writers from the Communist Screen Playwriters Society, the glamorous and forward-thinking affiliation notoriously did away with most social conventions of the time. Such customs included age of consent and monogamy, while at the same time adhering to the lawful and protected practices of consented mind control and the willful forfeit of personal earnings and ownership as they apply to spiritual privatization. After emerging from a seven-day lock-in of champagne pajama parties and space-themed orgies, Sorrels pulled his copy of William R. F. Todd's collection of short stories from the bookshelf and got to work. The outcome was a $64 question conceived and answered on the gravelly turnpike of Melvin Sorrels' reckless and unadulterated genius. I Came Across a Snake in the Road, Season 6, Episode 33. First aired April 11th, 1963. Speeding down a rural road in a vast sweeping valley, Regan Ward is several hundred miles into a solo, point-to-point, cross-country automobile race. Behind the wheel of his serpent 111 Speedster, he nearly loses control after almost hitting a rabbit, but keeps his foot in the throttle, chuckling with relief over the close call. Suddenly, after shifting into fifth gear, just as his gauges inexplicably malfunction, needles dropping off and fluttering crazily, 
Regan is overcome by a funny feeling, which he expresses through narration, recalling his inner dialogue and a retelling of the account. He waves it off and continues charging, whipping through the barren landscape at nervy top speed. Quickly he comes up on the leading car and blasts by it on the shoulder of the road, kicking up a cloud of dust. He snickers with a glimpse in his mirrors and pushes on. Later, several miles up the road, to his perplexity, Regan sees another race car ahead of him, similar to the one he passed. I figured I must have mistaken my position, Regan remarks. I had been on the limit for so many miles, it was entirely possible. He passes the car wildly, the back of his racer stepping out. Careening along, he approaches another car ahead of him, the same car. Shocked and unnerved, he bolts by it faster than the previous instances, this time trying to get a look at the driver, to no avail. It was clear fatigue was causing my mind to play tricks on me, our hero concludes. Still, I couldn't shake the strange sensation. That evening, Regan blindly slings his roadster over the rolling terrain at speed, his thoughts racing through his head in the midst of a mind-boggling internal struggle, a mental crisis compounded by the headlights of the other car dropping behind Regan's as he passes it over and over, again and again, twice in one continuous camera shot, with edgy, Google-eyed glances in his rearview mirror, the beams flashing his face. How is he always ahead of me? Regan asked, echoing his distressing thoughts. It defied all explanation. At a road junction, Regan, nearing delirium, screeches to a stop and steps from his car. He stands briefly, looking up and down the long, dark road. Nothing. He returns to the car, checks his course marker notes, and peels out, turning onto a road heading into the mountains. On a remote pass, with his racer crawling along the rocky mountain ridge, Regan puzzles over his situation with mounting dire as he casually passes the other race car once again, and again, indifferently, defeatedly. That's when I reckon I must be dead, Regan recounts, deducing in a calm fog, his goggles around his neck, eyes unblinking and locked forward. Killed trying to swerve around that rabbit earlier. I'm in hell. High in the mountains, Regan pulls into a small restaurant, a lodge, and braces himself on the car hood, following another funny feeling. Inside, he finds a waitress wiping down a table. You forget something else, hon? She asks. Forget? Regan probes sternly with agitation. This routine again, hon? Really? The waitress says. What do you mean, else? Why did you say else? Regan shouts, grabbing the waitress by the forearm, causing her to drop the glass she was holding. Mister, you're hurting me the waitress exclaims, squirming from Regan's grasp. She explains to him that he had come into the restaurant ten minutes earlier and again before that, each time swearing up and down that it was his first time ever stepping foot inside the establishment. I must be losing my mind, Regan says later, sitting there with a the beer, recounting his story to the waitress, who's noticeably skeptical and concerned for Regan's health and safety. 
He's still out there on the road, I know it, asserts Regan, his hands wobbling over his beer. Waiting. Waiting to take me. Shortly after that, Regan catches the waitress phoning the authorities. He flees from the restaurant and rushes for his car, orchestral strings shrilling with terror. Inside the cockpit, after firing up the engine, Regan notices a pair of headlights coming up the road, the other race car. He watches fearfully as the lights slowly approach and roll by. At that moment, Regan's headlights catch the driver's face, and we see that it's Regan. Same car, helmet, and racing coveralls. Regan shudders with horror. Suddenly inside the second race car, we ride along with the second Regan, uptight and agitatedly checking his mirrors. And so the schoolyard limerick goes. I came across a snake in the road, Sorrel says, launching into a cryptic closing narration with a nursery rhyme quote that features a snake devouring its own tail. During which the second Regan, with overwhelming hysteria, closes in on his racer counterpart, a third racing car, identical to the previous two. He passes it, keyed up and frantically trying to get a look at the driver, before barreling on with stunned panic. The best candy on earth comes from Mars. Utilizing a beloved in-between structural device, the loop, I came across a snake in the road is an existential horror story on the human condition, made up of equal parts identity, paranoia, and survival. The theory of a one-electron universe intrigued the hell out of me, Sorrels once said. The notion of all humans deriving from the same singular particle and the thought of instinctual self-preservation and individuality within this framework instill, in a way, the ability to avoid showing up in the same dinner jacket as someone else, the suggestion was too tantalizing not to put down on paper. The Roadster was where it was at, though, Sorrels told a group of writing students from the North Carolina Film Academy in a 1977 televised special for public access. We needed a car that was the right kind of menacing looking. Greenwald made this sports car with these extended headlights that really personified the thing had a long, thin grill that looked like it was grinning. Zeppelin Silver. That was the official name of the paint color. Can you believe that? Sorrels added, chain-smoking in a leather reading chair before lecturing on his favorite color for the better part of an hour. The framing of the story was easy enough, Sorrels continued. Years earlier, I had written the fixings for a story about an escaped fugitive driving cross-country, passing billboard advertisements with slogans and phrases that although ambivalent, seemed to be directed at him. Give yourself up, to the robust flavor of Colombian time coffee, Sorrels quoted, to the laughter and intimate applause of the students, ahead of instructing them to shout out other possible catchphrases. It's the writer's responsibility to devise a compatible vehicle, Sorrels later stated. It's decision-making with $10 words, that's all. Or $5 if you don't have the schooling, or need the five extra bucks to keep the heat on. Snake in the Road has, without question, left an indelible impact on many, even at its most basic. What if a fellow traveler beats you to the next rest stop? What if you chase someone around continuous corners only to catch the tail end of them turning the next corner? What if they're wearing the same clothes as you? 
These are the accessible, digestible, mind-blowing, hair-raising, fundamentals fostered and memorialized by fans for decades. And even as the original series' third-to-last episode, I came across a snake in the road remains the creme de la creme of science fiction royalty and the in-between at its finest. See it at your dealer's right away. A mere sampling of six scrumptious dishes from a menu 17 pages thick. Hearty spoonfuls of sweet and savory gooey goodness, storied and served with a smile. And a wink. A greasy smorgasbord to satisfy any palate. And as one might expect, your money's no good here. This one's on the house. Weary travelers check the sign out front. They're open late and welcome all. In a world of black and white, there is a region of gray and the in-between. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. And now, a word from Mr. Sorrels. Spending long hours at the typewriter, I require a cigarette with an ageless taste. Robust and matured with care. That's why I reach for the elegant refinement of Mothball Slims. Yes, Mothball Slims will waltz its way straight into your pleasure center. So pick up a carton of yours today. That's Mothball Slims. Taste the decades. One smooth suck at a time.